you can survive weeks without food. You can survive days without water. You can survive a few seconds without air. But you cannot live without hope. Hope is what we all need to cope in life. You need hope not because you're going to die tonight. You need hope because you have to get up and live tomorrow. As a matter of fact, I believe the cry of humanity is, is there any hope? People look in a lot of different places for hope. They may not know that's what they're looking for, but they know they need something to give them the strength to continue today, tomorrow, the next day. A lot of people, some of you maybe here today, have a gross misunderstanding of hope. Hope is not the same as optimism. Optimism is psychological, but hope is theological. Optimism is a personal trust in myself, whereas hope is a permanent trust in Jesus Christ. Optimism is what I think I can do, while hope is what I know God can do. Optimism tends to deny reality. You know, optimism is kind of this Pollyanna attitude, the sun will come out tomorrow, everything's going to be okay, it's not as bad as you think it is, while optimism denies the fact that, yeah, sometimes life gets pretty stinky, sometimes life is pretty bad. Hope doesn't do that. Hope says this. Hope says, you know what? It's bad right now. It's really, really bad. As a matter of fact, it may never has, have been as bad as it is right now, but I believe that God will give us the strength that we need to get through it because I believe that God is in control. Hope is assurance, not GI hope, but assurance that God is in control of my life, and I'm going to put my faith and trust in Him. And the foundation for our hope, where we get that kind of hope, is from what we're here to celebrate today. What we have sung about, what we've celebrated through baptism, new life, what we're here to celebrate today is the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Hope is only found in Jesus Christ. Because here's the bottom line. In order for me to have hope in this life, in order for me to have meaning and purpose in this life, one thing has to take place. Death has to be removed from the picture. Death has to be defeated. Because in order for my life to have meaning and purpose, it has to be about more than just this life. It has to be about more than just the here and now, because if this is all we have, that's not a whole lot to have to build your life on. But if my life is about eternity, if death has been defeated, the fear of death has been removed from the picture, then my life has meaning. My life is investing in eternity. Life is here. Eternity goes on forever. So my life is investing in something beyond that. And so the truth is, in order to have real significance, death has to be defeated once and for all. The only hope is a complete and total defeat of death. And that is what Jesus accomplished through his resurrection. He was crucified. He was buried. He was raised from the dead three days later. And in doing so, 
accomplishes a defeat of death. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 26, we see Paul go and answer some important questions about what would happen if there was no resurrection. There are some conclusions that we can draw from this text that will show us how our hope is in the resurrection and why our hope is in the resurrection. If we have stated, if our hope is tied to the resurrection, then it stands to reason, the conclusion we draw from that is that there is no hope without the resurrection. That's the first conclusion that we draw. And we're going to walk through these verses together, but before we even dive in, the first thing we need to realize is that for all of us here today, whether you profess faith in Christ or not, you have no hope if Jesus is not alive today. There's no hope. So, answering the question, Paul does, what if there's no resurrection? Well, let's just kind of walk through it together. Number one, if there's no resurrection, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then our preaching is pointless. Uh, I might as well have slept in this morning. There's no point in preaching what we're preaching because we preach everything that we teach, everything that we believe is based on a resurrected Christ. Look at verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless. I might as well be preaching about unicorns and leprechauns if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead because what I'm preaching isn't has no foundation. It has no truth. It has no, nothing that we can bank on. If Jesus, if, if I'm preaching about a dead man, what hope is there in that? Our preaching is useless. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is fruitless. That's another conclusion we draw. Another answer to the question, what if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead? Well, then our faith, we're putting our faith in a dead man. There's nothing to be gained from that. Look at verse 17. Verse 14, rather. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching, preaching is useless, and so is your faith. What does that mean? We'll look down at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. Okay, Jesus died for our sins. He became the substitute, the sacrifice, but it is through his resurrection that he defeats death. The penalty of sin is death, so without the resurrection, we're still trapped in sin. We're still dead to sin. So I'm putting my faith in Christ, and if he isn't raised from the dead, then I don't have forgiveness of sins. I'm still a slave to sin, so my faith is useless. It's fruitless. Also, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our witness is worthless. A few years ago, I read a story, and I I, I hung on to this story. It was a lady in Georgia that was convicted of of, uh, mis- reporting 1,289 mammogram reports from ladies and ended up giving false negatives to 10 of those ladies. In other words, told these ladies they didn't have cancer when they did. And at the time of the writing of the article, two of those ladies had died. You may ask, as I did, why would somebody do that? Is it just a cruel joke or, you know, is it something else? Well, uh, the hospital said the reason she did it was because she just got behind in her work. She got behind in her work. She didn't want to fall too far behind, so she just went in and said negative, 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 and ladies paid some of them the ultimate price. You know, we, and some of you gasped appropriately so at that story, but here's the thing. 
If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then that is exactly what we're doing to people when we tell them they can have salvation in Christ. We're telling them there's hope when there really isn't any. If Jesus isn't alive, then we don't, if, if he can't defeat death, then how can we possibly hope to defeat death? Our witness, we are false witnesses if Jesus isn't raised from the dead. Look at verse 15. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Several years ago, and some of you have probably been to these before, the Passover Seder uh, uh, celebrations where a Jewish Christian will walk you through the traditional Jewish Passover feast and talk about how it was really a prophecy, a foretelling of what Jesus would do through his sacrifice, his death, his burial, his resurrection. It's an amazing experience. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to be a part of that, it's amazing. And one year we had a fellow come and do that, a Jewish Christian do that. And Mandy and I, and the kids took him out to eat after the service was over with. And, I, you know, he comes from a Jewish family, of course. And his, his parents were still, they were not believers. And I asked him, I, I said, what, so what does your dad, your mom and dad, what do they say when you present what you presented to us to them? He said, my dad just says, uh, yeah, you're just selling people a bill of goods. You're just telling people what they want to hear in order to make money. And I thought, you know what? If Jesus isn't alive, that's what we're all doing, right? We're just selling people a bill of goods. We're telling them there's life in Christ, and that's not true. So if Jesus isn't alive, there's no hope. There's no, our witness is worthless. Let's make it a little more personal. In verse 18, we learn if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our destiny is death. You know, our only hope is death, which is a hopeless situation. Verse 18, those who also have fallen asleep, Paul says, in Christ, have perished. If Jesus isn't alive, then they're dead. They're not alive today. If we're still slaves to sin, which can only, freedom from sin can only come about if Jesus has defeated death, if we're still slaves to sin, then our destiny when this life is over is eternal separation from God. It's death. That's what we have to look forward to. Not a very hopeful situation. And then Paul sums it up pretty well in verse 19. What happens if Christ has not been raised from the dead? Well, our life is just meaningless. And that's a, 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 a hopeless thought in and of itself. Our life is meaningless. Look at verse 19. If our hope in Christ is only for this life, then we are to be pitied more than anyone in the world. To have hope, let's go back to what we said at the beginning of our message. To, to have hope, your life has to be a more, about more than just this life. And Paul said it plain and simple. If, if all we have is this life, then we're in a pitiful situation. We are to be pitied. Because life, true meaning, true purpose in life comes in, in investing in eternity. You and I were built for eternity. That's God created us for eternity. And the truth is we're going to exist in eternity one place or the other. We'll either be with God or separated from God. It's eternal death. It's not, hey, you're dead. It's over. It's eternal death, suffering in hell, separated from God. And so in order for my life, because I am built for eternity, in order for my life, in order for me to find what I'm here to do, my true purpose in life, then it has to be about eternity. 
death has to be defeated. Because without that, then we are to be pitied, Paul says. So you think about the resurrection, and many people don't believe the resurrection. Some who even profess faith don't believe it's a literal event, that it actually happened. Uh, that he was resurrected just spiritually, not, not in bodily form. And when you think about the event itself, on the surface, it seems a little hard to believe. So why do we believe it? Should we believe it? Is it reasonable to believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? Well, the answer is yes, because there is evidence to support the resurrection of Christ. Now listen, there's an element of faith, and this is part of faith, the definition of faith. Uh, in part is that I believe in something that I cannot see. I mean, that's always going to be a part of our faith as followers of Christ. There are going to be things about God that we can't prove in a physical sense. He's God. Uh, and, and there are things about him that we just will never understand. There are parts of our faith that is believing without seeing. But that doesn't mean it's a fool's faith. Our faith is very reasonable. There is plenty of evidence to support what we say we believe. I mean, first and foremost, if you believe that the Word of God is accurate, that it is true, that it is inspired by God, that it is perfect, inerrant, then you have the testimony of the Word to go by. A lot of, even just the Old Testament sacrificial system, when you look at that, it all pointed to what Jesus did on the cross. It was temporary. You had a, a, an animal, a lamb, a ram, something that was as close to perfect as possible that was used to sacrifice, to pay the price temporarily for the sins of man. Uh, the result, the wages of sin is death, so something had to die. So God set up this sacrificial system so that man, as long as he was walking in right fellowship with God, could offer this sacrifice for his sins. But again, it was only temporary, and it was only for certain sins. Okay, Some sins there was no sacrifice for. And so what Jesus did is he brought that system and he fulfilled it. He completed it. Because while even the most perfect animal was blemished, Jesus was perfect in every sense of the word. Man sinned, so man had to die. God became man, a perfect man, perfect sinless life, and died to pay the price that you and I couldn't pay. So the Old Testament, if you look at the sacrifices, it points perfectly to what Jesus fulfilled through his death, burial, and resurrection. Also, we have prophecies uh, like Isaiah 53 that predict pretty graphically the crucifixion, look at verse 10 of Isaiah 53. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he, we were guilty, but he became guilty for us. He will see his offspring, which is us. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, Jesus, the Messiah, he will see it and be satisfied. God his, his requirements that, that someone has to die is satisfied. God is still just. He is justified, yet he is also the justifier. He is satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many. He, as he will bear their iniquities, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with transgressors. 
yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now that, again, Old Testament, pre-crucifixion, that, that describes the sacrifice of Jesus in some pretty graphic detail, detailed information there in that prophecy. And also many point to that as, as a prophecy of the resurrection because, again, Jesus has to be alive in order to give us life. The Messiah would have to be alive. He would have to die yet continue to be alive. But, you know, that's not a stretch to say that, but is there any more information in the Old Testament that would point as a prophecy to the resurrection of Christ? Well, Jesus himself pointed to Jonah and three days, three nights in the fish to be a prophecy. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, for just as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Paul also interpreted Christ's resurrection as the first fruits, which was a Jewish feast every year after Passover. Look at verse 20 of our passage today. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest. That's a reference to the first fruits of all who died. The first fruits, again, this is a reference to the Old Testament uh, feast that would happen three days after Passover, the first day of the week where the people were commanded, the Jewish people were commanded to bring a first of their crops to offer to the Lord as an offering. And the priests would wave a sheaf of barley as an offering to the Lord to signify that the rest of the harvest belonged to the Lord. Thanking God for the harvest and that that, that first fruit was a symbol that the rest of it belonged to him as well. We get this in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites, tell them when you enter the land that I'm giving you, the promised land, and reap its harvest, you are to bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priest. He will wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. Now just do the math on the Jewish calendar. Uh, three days after Passover, the day after the Sabbath, that is Sunday. That's the first day of the week. So the fact that the offering represents the fact that the rest of the harvest belongs to the Lord. Why is Paul comparing the resurrection of Christ to the first fruits? Well, he is the first fruit. He, his resurrection symbolizes the fact that the rest of the harvest, we who put our faith and trust in him, we belong to God. So even the first fruits, just the fact that Jesus was raised on the first day of the week, the first fruit is the first day of the week, that in and of itself is a prophecy to the resurrection of Christ. Aside from the Feast of first fruits, there are other Old Testament references. We're not going to walk through all of them today, but Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11. Psalm chapter 22, verse 22 and, and following. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Those are Old Testament references to the resurrection, prophecies about the resurrection. And that's why we read in verse 4 of today's passage, 1 Corinthians 15, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Underline that phrase, just in your Bible. If you're open to that passage, underline just as the scriptures said. The scriptures foretold it and it came to pass. So we have the testimony of the word and we also have the testimony of witnesses. Paul, in, in verses three through eight of chapter 15, Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, 
And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. If you ever were a part of faith, that's the Oreo verse. You remember that, any of you that were in faith? You have the burial and resurrection of Christ sandwiched between according to the scriptures. The scriptures told us and testify to the fact that Jesus is alive. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now at the time of this writing. Paul's writing this. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Then at last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul's referring to himself. Jesus appearing to him on the road to Damascus. So we have those witnesses. And then we read in Luke chapter 24, verse 4. While they, Mary and the other women, this is who this is referring to, while they were wondering about this, they had found the empty tomb, suddenly two men in the clo- in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood behind them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? In other words, Jesus is alive. He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful man, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. He himself prophesied his death and resurrection. So he appears to the disciples. And then we read, according to Matthew, he appears to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. He appears to the twelve collectively. He appeared to James, his brother, who before the resurrection didn't believe his brother was the Messiah, but after seeing him come back from the dead, believed, and ended up becoming a martyr himself for the gospel. He believed. So we have James, we have Doubting Thomas, we have the apostles, we have those 500 witnesses. Now think about it. I I doubt very seriously that if I tried, I could get everybody in this room to agree on something very simple. But to say that 500 people saw the same hallucination or believed the same lie is crazy. I mean, you look at the witnesses themselves, the number of people who saw Jesus alive and agreed on the same thing. If we were to give, let's think about it this way. If we were to give each of them 15 minutes to testify to what they had seen about seeing Jesus resurrected, it would take all day, the rest of today, tonight, tomorrow, Monday, Monday night, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all day, all night, into the early hours of Friday morning, we would finally start to wrap up testimony. Each person 15 minutes who saw Jesus alive, it would take over 128 hours of testimony to get through all of those people. That's pretty convincing evidence. To get all of those people to agree on the same thing, we have the witnesses that saw Jesus alive. Historical record that they saw him alive. We also have the testimony of the way. Now, who's the way? The scripture tells us the way. That's the early, the name given to the early followers of Christ. Those were they, what they called themselves. That's what they called themselves. Paul tells us this before, he's before Felix, the procurator of Judea from uh, 50, AD 52 to 60. He says, this I admit that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers. You know, you could argue that, that the greatest testimony witness to the resurrection would be Paul himself I mean if there was ever anybody that was convinced Jesus was dead it was him persecuting Christians and then one day on the road to Damascus he saw the resurrected Lord and his life was changed forever to the point to where it brought him great suffering persecution and ultimately his death someone who was convinced Jesus was dead gave his life 
because he believed he was alive. And then, of course, the testimony of the disciples, the, the, the transformation of the disciples. John Stott, W. Stott, R.W. Stott said, perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the resurrection. They went from fear after, during and after the crucifixion to faithfulness after the resurrection. Something happened to change. They were running for their lives. And with the exception of Judas, who betrayed Christ... We can look at history, we can look at tradition and see that all of the disciples gave everything for Christ. They were faithful to the end. John was the only one, according to tradition and history, that was not martyred, but he survived an attempted poisoning, uh, being exiled to Patmos. But the rest of them, I mean, it, it, it reads, it's a list of martyrs. Andrew and Matthew were both crucified. Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified like Jesus. He didn't feel like he was worthy. James, the brother of John, was beheaded in Jerusalem. James, Jesus' brother, remember. Now, listen, don't be too hard on old James because, you know, if my sister told me that she was the Messiah, I'd be a little skeptical too, right? But after he saw his brother resurrected, he, he gave his life. James, the brother of John, was beheaded. I mean, James, brother of Jesus, rather, was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and beaten to death with a club. Thaddeus was shot to death with arrows. Now, this was a pleasant thought for today. Don't think too much on this, but Nathaniel was filleted alive and then beheaded. That's a pleasant way to go. But he still maintained his testimony about the resurrected Christ. Philip was hanged. Thomas got over his doubts. And he was eventually run through with a lance. Here's the amazing thing. None of them, not a single one of them ever recanted their story. None of them said, you know what, it's a lie. They gave their lives and in very painful ways, most of them suffered incredibly. But they never, ever changed their story. Now, it's hard enough to get a man to die for what he believes and knows is true. How in the world could you get those guys, all of them? to give their lives for something that was false. It's impossible. Why did they do that? The reason is because they knew Jesus was alive. They saw him themselves. They saw him in person. They knew without a shadow of a doubt they had seen the miracles. They had seen what he had done in life. All that he had taught, the Holy Spirit brought it all together for them. They saw him alive and it changed their lives forever. Nothing in this life, not even death, was worth turning their backs on Jesus. Again, remember, these guys were running for their lives, hiding after the crucifixion. But once they saw Jesus alive, it changed everything. We have the testimony of those who followed Jesus. And again, Paul may be the greatest one because of what he went through, what he did. But the way grew rapidly in the first few centuries and continues to grow. There's over 2.3 billion Christians in the world today. And if you look at the fact that in 1910, there was a study done between 1910 and 2010. In 1910, there were 600 million. 2.3 billion today. Yeah, there are more people, but more people are coming to Christ. And unfortunately, not as much in the U.S., but all over the world, places like Africa and Asia, Asia Pacific, people are coming to Christ in incredible numbers. Sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, it's amazing. It went from like 3% Christian in 1910 to 63 in 
2010. I mean, the gospel is being spread. People are coming to Christ all over. People continue to come to Christ. It's an amazing testimony to the fact. How in the world could we ever look to anybody or anything else for direction in life, for hope, for eternity, than someone, Jesus, who's alive today? Putting your faith in Christ is putting your faith in someone, God himself, who became man, who is still alive. It would be foolish to put our faith in any other direction, to go in any other direction. We can say with confidence then, third conclusion, that there is hope. Hope is what you need. There is hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the central event in history. I mean, think about it. Easter is the central. It changed everything. April the 21st, 2019. 2019 years from what? From the day that Jesus split history between B.C. and A.D. Easter, it's the pivotal, the central event. Even if you're here today and you tell me, Pastor, I don't believe that Jesus is alive. Every time you celebrate a birthday, you recognize his resurrection. Because it's dated by that event. Everything. It's the, and nothing in history has changed history more than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of that event, because it is a fact that Jesus is alive, we have hope. And Jesus is the herald of hope. Look at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus, if, but Christ has indeed, Paul says, you know, this is what happened. This is the result if he's not raised from the dead, but he has. So since he's been raised from the dead, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Going back to that feast of first fruit, the Old Testament ceremony. It, it was a, a, a command that God gave the Israelites to, to tell them, hey, God, we recognize all of this is yours. We're giving you an offering. It's the first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, Paul says. Jesus himself in John chapter 12, verse 23, compared his death to the planting of a seed. And here in 1 Corinthians 15 and later on in verse 35 through 39, I believe, he elaborates even more. He talks about how the harvest, that, that the resurrection of Christ was the beginning of the harvest. So Jesus' death, the seed is planted, the resurrection, the harvest comes. And so we look at that as the Lamb of God, Jesus dies on Passover. The old sacrifice system, Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Each Passover, a perfect spotless lamb, closest you could find. Jesus becomes the perfect lamb of God on Passover. Three days later, he becomes the first fruits, the resurrection. He is accepted by God. And because he is raised three days later as the first fruits represents the rest of the harvest, that means that one day you and I, those who have put their faith in him, will be raised from the dead. So you look at this, two truths, just, just jump off the page. First of all, the first truth offering, God accepted the sheaf that the priest waved before the Lord, and in accepting that sheaf, God was accepting the rest of the harvest. He was giving the harvest. So you and I, on our own, can't be accepted into heaven. But because Jesus became our offering, the first fruits, God accepts him, and in accepting his sacrifice and accepting his son, he accepts us, those of us who are in him. The only hope is through Jesus Christ. The second truth that just jumps off the page 
The priest didn't stand before the people, stand before God and wave a palm branch. No, he waved a sheaf of barley. The sheaf was just like the harvest that would come. Right now, you and I, we're not like Jesus, but one day we will be. That's the promise. The resurrection tells us we have life, we have meaning, we have purpose, but we're also, once we enter into that relationship with Jesus, we're a work in progress. Today, we're not like him, but one day we will be just as he is and see him face to face. Those are the promises. We have, we have before us this, this beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us and what he promises us. And in that, there's hope. If you've lost hope today, maybe you're searching. You came here today searching for hope. Well, I can't give you every answer to every question, but I can introduce you to Jesus Christ. He is the herald of hope. He is your only hope. He gave his life so that you could live. He was raised from the dead so that death could be defeated and you could live eternally. You and I could live. He's also the evidence of eternity. Look at verse 21, 1 Corinthians 15. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, again, there's a reference. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. The firstfruits represent what's about to come. Christ the firstfruits. Verse 24, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. This is what Paul talks about more in 1 Thessalonians, that one day those who are in Christ, those who are dead will be raised, and those who are alive will be called up together in the air. Verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 4 assures us, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So there, that's talking about the resurrection of life. We see in Revelation, the judgment of the righteous. That's referring to that day God will raise his church. He will raise those who are dead in him to life. But then when Jesus returns to earth in judgment, the lost will also be raised. Again, death doesn't mean you're dead, it's over. You're going to live forever somewhere. And Revelation uh, tells us what's going to happen. Those who will be judged. John chapter 5 also speaks to this. Verse 28, don't be surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God. They will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. And those who have continued to, in evil will experience judgment. And then we see more about this judgment of the dead in Revelation chapter 20. Sobering verses. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was thrown into the lake of fire. Very clear, very plain, very simple. Two extremes. Eternal life in Christ. That's hope. 
Eternal death separated from God in hell, that's hopelessness. Only way to have hope is in Jesus Christ. And the only reason we have hope is because he's alive today. This just highlights the truth that that the fact of eternity brings hope to the followers of Christ because he is the hope of eternity. He is the assurance. We have eternity because of Jesus' death and resurrection. He's also the destroyer of death. D.L. Moody talked about when he was a young preacher. I can remember to this day the first funeral I ever preached. And he talked about the first time he was called on to preach a funeral. He didn't know much. And so he decided he would search the Gospels to try to find an example of where Jesus preached a funeral. But the problem he saw was that every funeral Jesus encountered, he busted up because people came back to life. Every time they heard the voice of God, they came alive. Death and Jesus don't go together. Wherever there is Christ, there is life. Death doesn't exist because he has defeated death. He is the one who destroyed it for all of us. Look at verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished will be death. So how do we really know that death has been abolished? How do we know that we have hope? How can we have assurance that Jesus is alive? How can we know that when our life is over, that we will live for all of eternity? Well, you have to have faith. And you have to have faith not just in anything, but in what Jesus did, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And I want to show you what he does for us. Through that, I'm going to get my sin-destroying gloves on here. That's what these are. They're not kitchen gloves. Don't be mistaken. But Jesus accomplishes for us life, eternal life. And you and I, we're kind of like this handkerchief. Before sin, we're clean. But because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, all man is born with sin. And even if you weren't born with sin, all you got to do is spend about five minutes in the nursery and realize that we're born with sin. But even if we weren't, we would choose to. Adam and Eve did. Don't be too hard on them. You would have done the same thing if you were in the garden, okay? It wasn't women's fault, men. You would have done the same thing, and you did. You chose. We all did. We chose to sin, and here's what happens when we sin. Our lives get pretty nasty, pretty dirty. Let me get it really good and dirty because... I mean, ideally, looking at this, this only covers part, but this is what our lives look like, right? How many of you here today would testify that this is pretty much what your life looked like before Jesus? Some of you here today, this is what your life looks like, and I'm not here to make you feel bad or to tell you I'm better than you now because this was me at one point. This was all of us at one point. But Jesus went to the cross, and he shed his blood. looks a lot like blood, doesn't it? He shed his blood. He became that lamb of God, that sacrificial lamb on the Passover. And in doing so, he tells us in his word that he is the living water. And if we'll drink of that, we'll never thirst again. And one of the reasons is because he takes gray. In other words, you won't need anything, right? Ultimately, forever. Because he takes care of our greatest need. And that's that he cleanses us from all sin and all unrighteousness. The living water. Jesus Christ. 
For those who drink will never be thirsty again. Our sin is clean, and once again, not because of anything we did, we are white as snow. Now here's the deal. You're saved, you're still here, right? Do you live a sin-free existence after that? No, but the good news is, is that the blood of Jesus is enough to take care of all of our sins for all time, and he continues to clean us and make us as white as snow. Ultimately, it's gone. That's the promise. That's where hope is found. If Jesus just died, this would still be dirty, figuratively speaking. You and I would still be dirty. But because he's alive, you and I can be free from sin. Here's the thing. Y'all bear with me. Get my sin-killing gloves. No, it wasn't the gloves. It was Jesus. Here's the thing. Life won't give it. Achievements won't accomplish it. Men can't provide it. Family won't fulfill the need. The only hope for life, for death, for eternity is in Jesus Christ. And I'm here today to tell you that if you will put your faith and trust in Christ, He will give you salvation, satisfaction, and security from now throughout all of eternity. He'll give you meaning and purpose in this life. What you're looking for, is there any hope? Is there any meaning? He'll give you that in this life, but then he'll give you eternal life with him in heaven afterwards. How is he able to do that? One word, victory. He took it from death and he gave it to us. And that's why, if you look at verse 55 of our passage today through 57, we read that Jesus, Paul said that Jesus defeated death, and we read Paul, that's why he asks, death, oh death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Because the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. I can't promise you a lot. I can't answer all of the problems, solve all the problems in your life, but I can solve your greatest problem, or at least tell you who can, and that's Jesus Christ. You need hope. It's only found in Him. And He will change your life. You want to live, thrive, and survive in this life and beyond this life? The answer is Easter. The answer is the resurrected Lord changing your life, just like He did Paul, just like He did the disciples. He can change your life, not just today, not just tomorrow. You don't need hope because you may die tonight. You need hope because you have to live tomorrow. You need hope because you need to live throughout all of eternity. Jesus can save you, no one else but Christ. He can give you eternal life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. In this time of prayer, I want to ask you two questions. Number one, do you have any hope? If you don't have hope, then you don't have Jesus because he is the only hope. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, then this Easter could be the greatest day of your life. Just everybody, just spend a few moments in prayer. Head, everybody, just bow your heads. Do you know Jesus this morning? If not, you can know him. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to understand all about what Jesus did all of his life, all of his miracles. Here's what you need to understand. Number one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You are a sinner just like we all are. You can't get to heaven without forgiveness of sin. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price that you could not pay for your sin. You accept 
him and ask him to come into your life, forgive you of your sins. You can do that right now as you pray. And if you do that, Jesus will come to you and he will save you. If you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So do you have hope? Second of all, for those of us who are in Christ, are you living in hope? Are you living as if you were defeated? If we are saved, I'm not saying you're going to have to be a martyr, but what I am saying is that you should have the courage of your convictions to live for Christ. If not, what needs to happen for your life to be a living witness for Him? And if you're living each day, giving your best in the strength of God to be faithful, and you are being faithful, hold on to that hope that you know you have. Even if life is tough, even if it's the worst it's ever been, believe that God will bring you through. Believe that God is in control. That is the hope that we have. Father, thank you that we don't have to live as those who are defeated because you have given us victory. You have stolen it, Jesus, from death and you've given it to us. We don't deserve it. We could never earn it. There's nothing we could do to be good enough. There's nothing we can do to get to you, but you gave us the the beautiful, perfect gift of grace the most extravagant gift ever given. God, you gave your son Jesus. Jesus, you became man, lived what we could not do. You lived a perfect, sinless life. You gave yourself as the perfect Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb. You were raised from the dead three days later to be the the first fruits of all of us who would come after if we put our faith and trust in you. What an amazing gift. What an amazing act of mercy and love. And Lord, we know, those of us who know you know that if we put our trust in you, we can have meaning and purpose in this life. We can have the security of knowing that our eternity is set, that we will one day be like you and spend eternity with you in heaven. And I pray, God, that if there is somebody here today who does not have hope because they do not have eternal life, that today would be the day of salvation for them. That they would come during this time of invitation, this time of commitment, and allow me to to pray with them and share with them how to receive that gift of salvation through your son Jesus. And for those of us who know you, I pray that we will live lives of victory, living faithfully as witnesses for you. Father, give us the courage from day to day, the strength to be your witnesses, if necessary, to give everything, proclaiming your name to those who are lost. Lord, give us direction. Give us wisdom in this moment and help us to obey, to respond to your word in obedience. For it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. Would you stand for our time of commitment this morning?